From Boston University and BU Alumni Relations, welcome to Proud to Be You Around the World. I'm your host, Jeff Murphy, and this season, we're taking the podcast on the road to meet some of our most interesting and accomplished alumni navigating life and careers in cities across the globe. My guest today is Assistant U.S. Attorney Andrea Goldbark. Andrea earned her JD from the BU School of Law in 2001. She went on to dedicate a decade of her career to prosecuting the case against Mexican crime lord Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. On this episode of the podcast, Andrea reflects on her experiences at BU and beyond that prepared her to tackle this career-defining challenge, and why she believes she's found her calling as a public servant. All right, well, Andrea Goldberg, thank you so much for taking time to be on the Proud to Be You podcast. Thank you for having me. You are an assistant U.S. attorney. Congratulations and kudos are in order to you. People here at BU are very excited you were going to talk to us because you've been in the news quite a bit in 2019. Would you mind telling us just a little bit about why? Yes. Um, I spent 10 years of my career as an assistant United States attorney pursuing a drug trafficker who, after many long years, we were finally able to extradite from Mexico. And it went to trial. It was a pretty high-profile trial that many people saw in the news. So that's what got me in the in the press. And that was the trial of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. Yeah, I was wondering if you didn't want to say his name. But El Chapo, you, you put that man behind bars along with the other folks on the team. Congratulations. And I, I have a lot of questions for you about that. But um, I'll just rewind the clock a little bit. Did you always know that you wanted to be a lawyer? How did, how did that end up happening? I kind of fell into the law. Um, it's funny because I actually signed up for the LSAT after uh, my senior year in college, and I ended up not showing up. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I took a detour. Uh, I went to grad school. I moved to South America where I worked for various nonprofits. And it was kind of in that work that uh, I thought that having a legal degree would help me uh, in the work that I was doing. Um, and then through life and circumstance, I ended up... Um, becoming a lawyer, and I think a lot of it had to do with my experience at BU Law, mm. uh, that I kind of found my path to what's currently my calling. Yeah. Well, life and circumstance, as you called it, is exactly what we like to talk about it, with these interviews. <laughs> what what exactly, what kind of work were you doing in South America, and, wh- and how exactly did that lead you to specifically Boston University? How did you make the decision to do your law degree here? I was working for um, two different nonprofits. One was for the United Nations Development Program, uh, working in issues of deliberative democracy. And then I transitioned to working to Transparency International, which is an anti-corruption organization. And we received a grant from the Inter-American Development Bank to help institute an anti-corruption program in the Dominican Republic. So I lived there for six months. And we worked with the Attorney General of the Dominican Republic. And at what point in time, he turned to me, the Attorney General, and said, should we change our Constitution? And my response was, I think I need to go to law school before I'm qualified to answer a question like that. <laughs> so that kind of you know, reaffirmed my interest in, in the law. And when I was looking for a place to go to law school, I kind of liked the idea of the strong public interest that BU mm-hmm. had. Yep. And that was one of, the, one of the stronger factors that led me to BU School of Law. So tell me a little bit about your BU experience. You know, where were you living while you were in law school? When you weren't in the classroom, where would we might have found you on campus? Tell me about your life while you were here in Boston. So I did my undergrad out in the outskirts of Boston, so it was actually from the Brandeis University oh, sure. okay. in Waltham, mm-hmm. which was very different when I was in, in school there. And it was very expensive, actually, to try and find anything close to campus, so I ended up living in Jamaica Plain, sure. which I loved. Yeah, uh, yeah, It was a great, a great community, short commute, really enjoyed it. 
I was one of the weird people that actually liked to drive in Boston because I felt like I got a better sense of the city just by getting lost in the city. So I really loved it. When I wasn't in class, I was on the International Law Journal. And for those of you who are part of it or know where it is, I would personally think that the BU is probably the ugliest building on campus. I hate to say that, but um, the International Law Journal has its office on the 18th floor uh, and has some of the most spectacular views of Boston. So that was one of my hangouts, definitely during non-class hours. You mentioned the building, which uh, people always have an opinion about, but have you been back to campus since the addition of the uh, Redstone building on? I I have. Uh, I have. And it's actually, it is actually beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. Tell me about your in-the-class experience. Are there professors that you remember, specific classes that you took that you, when you look back on now, realize that had a, a pretty big impact on you, your life and your career? Yeah, I, there, I think that there are two. One is Professor Macklin, who I'm still in touch with today. Um, I will never forget walking in the first day of class with him being petrified because he already had all of our names and faces memorized. And he also had the ability that if you said something week one and then you said something different week four, he could remind you of what you said mm-hmm. week one that was contradictory. And it was, it was a, I described it as a roller coaster ride. Every single time you never knew it was going to happen. But I found him tough and challenging. And so I took every single class that he had. And I also was part of the, the criminal clinic. So Wendy Kaplan was also one of my mentors there. And I just had a lot of fun working with them. It was great. So as you were coming to the end of your BU experience, what was going through your mind in terms of making decisions about what that job you were going to look for was going to be? I think if I saw correctly on the internet, you ended up working for a private firm right out of law school. How did you sort of make that decision? I had never really worked in the private sector. And I think one of the things that BU exposed me to was kind of this, this corporate culture that I had never really been a part of. And I summered for a firm. Um, and it was it was interesting to earn that amount of money um, mm. for the little knowledge <laughs> I think we had at that time <laughs> in our legal career. And I think it was a little overwhelming coming out of law school with the amount of student debt that I had that I was honored enough to have um, the ability to work at one of those New York large law firms. And I didn't know if it was going to be for me or for how long, but I figured it would be an interesting opportunity to try something different and, you know, help me pay down some of my student loans. So that's exactly what I did for about three and a half years. So three and a half years uh, at a private firm. And then if you could give me kind of like the guided tour of your career leading up to where you are now, that would be great. And and I I get the sense that you've also kind of had to move around quite a bit. Is that not the case? Yes. I, I was at the firm for a year, and then I did my clerkship um, after one year, which I highly encourage. Um, so I, I clerked in San Diego, which was also a phenomenal experience. Went back to the firm for another couple of years, and then through friends of friends, um, was lucky enough to meet some people at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of New York. And with some mentorship and good guidance, I applied, and I was fortunate enough to get a position there. So I started in the office in 2005. I was there for about six years, and it was about a year and a half into my career in the Eastern District of New York that I became aware that the office had a long um, legacy of doing international narcotics cases. Mm. Considering that that I lived in Latin America, that I'm fluent in Spanish, uh, these cases, once I found out about them, it was my forte. It was what I was really interested in doing, and it turned out that I was good at doing it. I had a huge interest in it. At the time, we were doing a lot of Colombian cartel cases. I had a phenomenal mentor and boss there who let me work all these cases, and that's when I started to travel. I did a lot of travel throughout um, Central and South America, 
working these cartel cases. Um, I had done a lot of them, including the original indictment for the Chapel case while I was in my first term in the Eastern District of New York, uh, when I was given an opportunity to work um, and open a cartel, a Mexican cartel unit in Maine Justice. So it was around 2009. Mexico was in the news. The war in Juarez and El Paso was full on in the news. I think Juarez was one of the most dangerous cities in the world, mm-hmm. even over anywhere in Afghanistan. And the Assistant Attorney General at the time wanted to create a Mexican cartel unit, and I was honored enough to be able to be invited to run that, and I spent about six years there. Uh, and that's where I kind of further developed an expertise in doing Mexican cartel cases and expanded beyond just the Sinaloa cartel, which is the cartel that, that Mr. Guzman was the head of. Yeah. I don't know if I would say I had a lot of expectations as to whether or not he would ever be captured, and if he was captured, if he would actually ever be extradited. But that happened in around 2015 when he escaped, and then 2016 when he was captured again, that the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of New York called me and said, all right, it's time to come home and finish his trial once we knew he was coming. So as I've said, I I definitely want to dig in more about that. But I'm curious, it sounds like you really found your niche in the law. You found sort of a nice meeting point of your skills, your experience, you know, your desire to do something for the public good. From from what you know from like classmates you had at BU, is it unusual that lawyers are so able to find sort of the sweet spot for the kind of work that they want to do? Or do you feel like you found that sweet spot? I am fortunate because once I got to the U.S. Attorney's Office and I started working these cases, I really do feel that I found my calling. Yeah. Uh, and it and it somewhat feels like I might have stumbled into it a little bit, but I figure there was a reason why I took all the twists and turns that I did in my career to mm-hmm. get me where I am. Mm-hmm. And I do recognize that I am very fortunate that there are a lot of people that go to law school and they don't know why they're going to law school or, or for the right reasons. Um, I was I took six years off between law, college and law school, and I think that was probably the best decision I made because, as I said before, I signed up for the LSAT but didn't know if I wanted to go to law school. And with the financial commitment, I think you really have to be committed yep. to wanting to have a career in the legal profession to do it. And I know a lot of people, at least in law school, I felt that some people knew and a lot of people didn't. And I think that if you don't know, it's hard to find something that's, that's, that's a calling for you. And, you know, the law firm life or, you know, in-house counsel, there are a lot of people that I know that are very successful and very happy. Um, I think there's an equal number of people that probably aren't, uh, but feel that they have a financial burden, that they can't, they don't have any choices. And it's a, it's a smaller percentage of people that I really feel that they're professionally satisfied with the work that they're doing, yeah. which is unfortunate. Right, right. Well, being, you know, sort of ignorant of, of how federal cases work, I mistakenly assume that you were, were sort of assigned to this case, but you helped me understand when we talked earlier, you literally are the person that brought this case against El Chapo. Can you tell me again how you, that, developing that process of, of bringing together the indictment and then, um, you know, if you could talk a little bit more about, did you think he'd be extradited or was it sort of a long shot? I'd, I'd just love to know more about how you actually made this all happen. Well, uh, as I said, when I started in the Eastern District of New York, when I, w- I was promoted to the uh, International Narcotics Strike Force, and as I said, there was a long history of working Colombian cartel cases. And as we were working, and this is 2006, 2007, 2008, as we're working those cases and working to dismantle the Colombian cartels and people are getting arrested and extradited to the United States, some of these people are deciding to cooperate and help our investigation, we were learning that the Colombians were sources of supply for the drugs, and the people that they were sending them to were the Mexicans. And at some point in time, the Colombians transformed the relationship uh, with the Mexicans, instead of just having the Mexicans act as transporters, they became partners. So it was a lot of the Colombian influence that 
created the Mexican cartels and the power and the wealth that they have. Okay. And so our investigations just kind of naturally led us to the various Mexican cartels that were receiving the cocaine from the cases that we were working. So for me, it was kind of a natural, you know, follow the money, follow the drugs. You know, we kind of helped to dismantle a lot of the violence and a lot of the corruption that was happening in Colombia from these cartels. And it was, you know, the next natural step in the investigation to see where else they were going. And that led us into Mexico. So there was a big push in 2008 to um, to look at you know various different U.S. attorneys' offices around the country and who had what investigations, and it was again an investigation that I was working on in our office that we ended up charging not only Chapo Guzman but met the other leaders of the Sinaloa cartel in the first indictment that we did in 2009. So that was that was my first that was my first foray into Mexico. And as you mentioned, um, he he had had escaped from prison a couple times, and that prevented him from actually being extradited to the U.S. Right. Correct. So we did our original indictment in 2009, and we kept working the case. You know, as I said, in that interim, I went to D.C. I started looking at other cartels, and the investigation would occasionally cross over back into the Sinaloa cartel. The trial, uh, evidence was presented at trial that one of the wiretaps that I worked on while I was in Washington, D.C., was one that helped locate him and help capture him in 2014. And when he was captured in 2014, we were all very excited and a little bit incredulous that it, that it actually had happened. And the Attorney General of Mexico at the time said that, you know, the Gringos will get him when we're done with him in about mm-hmm. three to four hundred years. <laughs> so that was, there, there was that. So we weren't very hopeful. A lot of the heads of the cartels previously had been killed in gun battles. In 2009, Arturo Beltran Leva had been killed in a gun battle. Nacho Cornell had also been killed in a gun battle. So there was a, there was a pattern of, you know, these big bosses not going down uh, without a fight. And the fact that he was captured the way that he was, we were somewhat shocked. So I don't think, in two, definitely in 2014, I had no kind of hope that we would ever get our hands on him. Uh, when he escaped jail, the infamous escape in 2015 through the tunnel, I was of the opinion that if they get him, I'm not sure they'd given him an op- option to escape again. Mm. So even when he was caught in 2016 alive, I was also very surprised by that. Wow. And I think it was at that point in time with the different attorney general and the different politics that um, it became very clear to us that we were probably... He, the Mexicans were going to extradite him. So I think that was the first time early 2016 that, that I started getting hopeful that, that it actually might happen. So early 2016, you start getting hopeful. And, and one of the things I was curious to ask about was how, you know, your sort of confidence of conviction must, must have wavered over the years. At what point did you feel like, oh, wow, we really, this is really going to happen. We're going to get this guy and put him away for life. Are you confident? Do you feel like you, you know where this is going? Or is it totally just you don't know what's going to happen while you've, you know, you've spent, I think it was something like 10 weeks uh, in on the trial it was 12 weeks in 12 trial, weeks oh, wow. uh, yeah but we started i mean the decision was i think it was probably in april of 2016 that the decision was made that that the brooklyn case was a case that was going to proceed forward and that was the case he was going to be extradited for because there were other investigations around the country uh that's when our trial prep started so april 2016 is when you're dealing with you know 20 hours a day seven days a week until pretty much the trial was over even during the trial there are people that that say that they can look at a jury and know what they're thinking and know what they're doing i've never been one to think that i can read the tea leaves so it wasn't until the jury actually said we have a verdict and you know i heard it that i would actually let myself think that well maybe this is going to go the right way so you you mentioned you know um a background of speaking spanish and i actually read uh there's at least one article i read about you that said your language skills that you have a quote-unquote rare understanding 
of the inner workings of drug cartels due to your, your, your unique capture of, of the language. Do you, do you feel that's true? I mean, has that really um, aided you in, in being successful in your career? I think it's a definite advantage. Uh, there are a lot of young prosecutors who ask me, you know, that, that say they want to do this type of work, but they don't speak Spanish. I don't think you can't do the work if you don't speak Spanish. I definitely think it's an advantage to me. Um, if you don't speak the language, you are always dependent on an interpreter to help um, kind of translate for you. When you have the ability to speak the language or speak directly to the witnesses, speak directly to the law enforcement, the foreign law enforcement officers you're dealing with, to, you know, we had wire intercepts in this case to actually listen to the person's voice and understand what they're saying. It gives you, I think, an, uh, an added perspective that uh, is, is only an advantage. Yeah. So, um, obviously, you know, as everybody should know, um, you were uh, on the winning side of this case. Uh, El Chapo was convicted on all 10 counts, I believe, guilty on all Correct. 10 counts. How did that yeah. feel when the, the verdict was announced? It was surreal. Yeah. Um, there, were, there were a couple of moments. I mean, the trial in and of itself was something that I've never experienced or seen before, and I'm not sure whether or not I would ever see it again, um, just in terms of the press interest, the global press interest, mm-hmm. um, people lining up you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning in winter in New York to get a seat into the courtroom. Uh, the New York Times announced it as one of the top five tourist events in New York City. Um, it was, at times, you know, it was a spectacle. But I remember the first day when he was first brought into court for arraignment, thinking, you know, looking at someone that you've been after for 10 years yeah. and thinking that they're in a U.S. court. Mm-hmm. That was a very satisfying moment. Yeah. And the jury, there was a lot of uh, emotion and a lot of uh, satisfaction. I mean, just extreme satisfaction of, all the sacrifices, all the hard work, everything that that one in a team puts into this case for a decade was yeah. finally paying off. And yeah. It was, you know, it was the right and just decision that the jury reached. I read recently that Very that there's literally hundreds of thousands of lives that have been lost due to the opioid crisis, directly related to El Chapo in some way, shape, or form. Have you seen figures about how many lives may be saved by the fact that he's been put behind bars? No, we have yeah. we haven't seen any of that because unfortunately, as if you're looking at events, current events in Mexico, things are right. Things are progressing, and the cartel still exists. And I, I can't yeah. help but wonder: is it possible? I, I think I also read that um, El Chapo's lawyers had said immediately that they were going to appeal. How long could that of sort of go on for? It'll go on forever. I yeah. mean, <laughs> I mean, there will be appeals. There will be uh, habeas corpus petitions. There will be. Um, a lot of post-trial litigation. Yeah. Well, I hope I that it. you and your team were able to, to take a step back and, and celebrate that win. And, and I can only imagine that this truly, for a lawyer, would, would be seen as a career-defining case. Is that true for you? That's an interesting question because, you know, in the after, aftermath of, of the trial um, and the case, I'm back at doing my job. I'm back at doing what I feel like I do best, um, looking for new targets, looking for new challenges, and I feel like I'm kind of back to doing what I do because this is, you know, this is my job. This is my calling. Yeah. Um, but at times I kind of have to, you know, understand the enormity of what it is that we did. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a little daunting yeah. to think of it that way, which is sometimes why I probably don't think that I do. Um, it, you know, for me it was just another, you know, another case that I spent 10 years on. I mean, I really do think that had the escape you know, the, the worldwide televised escape in 2015 that happened, and then you add into that the interview with Sean Penn. Had those two events not happened, I'm not sure it would have obtained the global notoriety that it did. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that I think is what took it a little bit more into the spectacle phase of, of, what, of the, what the reality was. 
of the trial and the investigation and the work that we've done. But it, you know, it's it's definitely something that I've, I'm extremely proud of. But you know, it's it's one Mexican cartel head that I did, and there are many more, and there'll be some yeah. that were in the past, and there'll be other targets in the future. So it's yeah. definitely the highest profile one. Well, and and you you know you obviously are now a high profile uh, prosecutor in a uh, really you know you're working against drug cartels. How has this case and and maybe some of the other work that you're doing now? How has that changed your life? And and I guess I'm asking for you know the good ways and and maybe the not so good ways. The marshals are very good about training us. Um, I've always been very cognizant of personal safety, personal security. I don't have a social media presence. Everyone talks about the gram and, you know, Twitter and all that. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have no presence in that yeah. whatsoever, and I do it just on guidance of the marshals and on guidance of I'm just very careful with, you know, mm-hmm. my information. Um, and I've always been that way. And I'm, you know, I think I've lost a little bit of that uh, after the trial, so I'm a little bit more cautious about how I do things. Sure. But, yeah, I just I just try and keep doing things that I do. There have been people that have recognized me and the work that I've done, and that, I mean, again, like, I'm a public servant. I am, this is my calling, this is my career, and so I, I get somewhat uncomfortable with the attention just because, you know, it's, it's my job and this is what I'm supposed sure. to do. Um, but I do also understand that, you know, it was a fascinating case. I'm, I'm actually, I find it entertaining that people find it as interesting as I did because, you know, for a decade I've found this stuff really interesting. It's really cool. I think what we do, I think, is one of the, the best jobs ever. And it's nice to have people share that enthusiasm. Well, I mean, I can, as you're telling me the story, I can see the screenplay and the movie playing out in my head. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, a lot of people are, are playing that movie along with me. What, what, what do people not understand about your role as an assistant U.S. attorney and, and you know, the, the, maybe the less, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to use the word glamorous, but the, the things that might surprise somebody, you know, or maybe things you would tell somebody about the realities of your work if you were, you know, connecting with law students today about, you know, whether or not they'd want to go, you know, follow your path. What, what would you share with people? You know, whenever um, new people start in the U.S. Attorney's Office, it's, uh, I kind of personally think that what we do, the type of work that I do, is the most interesting work. But it's also my forte. I mean, there are people that do a lot of white-collar crime and, you know, and do mobs or terrorism, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for them. I just think what I do is cooler. I mean, it's just, it's just personal preference. I have the ability to use the language skill. Uh, the amount of international work that we do, I don't know if people understand that. Um, you know, these cartels do have an impact in the United States, but the work that we do is trying to dismantle the cartels at the, the place of birth. So that means that we have to work very closely with law enforcement officers and prosecutors and governments in foreign countries. Sometimes um, it can be a very productive relationship. Sometimes it can be a little more contentious. But the international aspect of what we have to deal with and the diplomacy is very challenging. I also find it very fascinating. Um, you know, we know that there's a huge impact of drugs in the United States, but when you start talking to these police officers that earn $250 a month, and you know you have someone like Chapo saying, I'll pay you $10,000 a month to look away and not do your job, or I'll kill you. I mean, so you're dealing with people that are dealing with in a very stark reality, you know, a different reality than what we're dealing with. Um, the level of corruption that has metastasized in those countries, thanks to, you know, what he and people like him are doing, and feeling that you're not only helping our country, but you're also helping other countries that may, because of systemic corruption, don't have the ability to kind of get to the end results that we can. Unfortunately, I think Mexico wasn't in a position to prosecute him. Mm. Um, and we were. And I think that it was, you know, our responsibility to do it. It had, you know, he definitely had an impact in the United States, but there was also, not just in Mexico, but in Central America and South America and other parts of the world where he had a direct and negative impact. To be able to do that is, I think, very, very heady. 
Um, the travel is a lot of fun. You get to go to some really cool places. And um, some of the witnesses that we get to work with are, I think, some of the most fascinating people mm. that I've ever dealt with. Yeah. Granted, some of them are murderers and, you know, <laughs> drug cartel heads, but, you know, it's, it's, it's never a boring day. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, you're continuing the work of, of prosecuting cartels and, and trying to bring an end to this terrible drug crisis that's been happening for so long. And I think, if I can say this, you recently relocated to Miami. Is that right? And that is, is that correct. a result of just the constant international aspects of your work? It's a combination. It's a combination of efforts. Um, I, I had returned to New York for the specific purpose of doing the trial. Uh, New York is a fantastic place, but it's a hard place to be a public servant. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very expensive city. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to be able to continue to work in an office that, again, has the same level and quality of work that I'd done in New York and D.C. Um, I'd worked with that office for a long time, so I know, know a lot of the people there, and has a little bit better of a you know a quality of life for a public servant. You got tired of shoveling snow. <laughs> I really did. <laughs> well, um, one of the reasons I ask is because Miami is our sixth largest BU alumni city. We have almost 7,000 alumni that live down there. And an interesting law and you know legal field is uh, in the top 10 of, of areas that BU alumni are working. Are you in the right place now to do the kind of work that you want to do? And I'm curious, you know, with this incredible win in 2019, um, where, where do you see your career headed over the next five or 10 years? What's interesting is, and I think that my time in D.C. kind of helped me see this, is that I really, I, I like and I excel in, in complex international cases. The longer, the messier, the more complex, the more problems, that's kind of, that's what gets me really excited. That's where I, where I shine. And so now, you know, there's a group of agents that I've been working with for a really long time who are some of the best in the world. We're having fun kind of looking around and saying, all right, where, you know, what should we do next? So... We have some options. I can't really discuss them right now, and you'll probably hear about it in a couple of years. But mm-hmm. it's it's nice to be able to have the luxury of using the experience that we have uh, and the relationships that we've been able to garner around the world over the last decade or so to see where it is that we could best be useful uh, and effective in what we do. And so I'll keep that as coy as... <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Of it's going to get. I won't ask. Uh, thank you so much for, A, for you know the incredible work that you're doing, and B, uh, for carving out some time to talk to me. I've been looking forward to chatting with you for, for a few weeks now, and I'm really glad that you were able to make time for it. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Andrea for sharing her fascinating story with all of us on the podcast. If you're interested in learning more, take a look at the links in the show notes of this episode, where you'll find a Univision article profiling Andrea and a New York Times piece that dives into the particulars of this case. On behalf of everyone on the BU Alumni Relations team, thanks so much for listening to Proud to Be You. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast wherever you find your episodes. I'm Jeff Murphy, and no matter where your path takes you, be proud to be you. The Proud to Be You podcast is produced by Boston University Alumni Relations. Our theme is from Jump and APM Music. To learn more about Proud to Be You, visit bu.edu slash proud to be you.